0: On March 12, 1992, after the extensive public consultations we learned about in the last episode, Canada's leaders embarked once again on a round of formal negotiations on the Constitution. And nearly six months later, on August 28th, they gathered in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, to sign the product of these talks, a 60-item everything-but-the-kitchen-sink reform package known as the Charlottetown Accord. In a nutshell, this episode is an attempt to briefly explain how we get to this point, how we go from a group of fundamentally divided delegates to a genuinely historic moment of complete consensus, a moment when Canada's leaders came together, albeit very briefly, to try and carve out a new path for Canadians and their constitution. This is Charlottetown, a podcast series that presents some of the stories and the debates behind Canada's first and still only constitutional referendum. This series is brought to you by the Centre for Constitutional Studies, a hub for research and public education at the University of Alberta in Edmondson. I'm your series host, Dr Richard Maley, and today's guests are John Borrows, Naomi Metallic, Howard Leeson, John White, Brian Lee Crowley, Michael Lustig and Kathy Brock. So one of the first key questions with any negotiations is who's at the table, who's involved. And on this front, there are four key differences between the Meech Lake negotiations of 1987 and the negotiations that led to the Charlottetown Accord in 1992. So firstly, this time around, on the recommendation of the Baudouin-Edwards Committee, Canada's two territorial governments of the Yukon and the Northwest Territories had a place at the table. Secondly, and again on the recommendation of Baudouin Edwards, an invitation was extended to and accepted by four national Indigenous organisations, namely the Assembly of First Nations, the Native Council of Canada, the Metis National Council, and the Inuit Tapirisat of Canada. Thirdly, Brian Mulroney, although he was still Canadian Prime Minister, opted not to attend the talks and delegated responsibility instead to Joe Clark, his Minister for Constitutional Affairs. And fourthly, Quebec, having officially committed itself to awaiting a constitutional offer from the rest of Canada, didn't actually participate in the initial talks and didn't join until well into the summer of 1992. Now we'll talk a bit later about points three and four in this list, but first I want to focus on the significance of having national Indigenous groups directly involved in the negotiations, which hadn't happened with Patriation in 1981 or with Meech Lake in 1987. And as Professor John Burroughs explains, the foremost goal of these groups was to obtain constitutional recognition of Indigenous people's inherent right to self-government a task that would require changing the way that Canadians think about a key principle of their constitution.
1: I think the biggest challenge that Indigenous peoples have in getting a recognition of their self-determination is federalism. (laughs) And that reason that's a challenge is because the powers are divided between two levels of government And either they don't wanna recognize and use those powers in relationship to indigenous peoples, or they wanna have all the powers (laughs) to uh, use so that indigenous peoples don't have any space to come up through the the middle as it were. So what do you do about that? Um, One, I think you just need to name that, right? Federalism serves us as Canadians in very many ways for very good Reasons in in serves us well, uh, but it doesn't serve Indigenous peoples well um, because it frustrates their democratic participation as nations. Um, because it's only you can only use this power under Section ninety one or ninety two through delegation as Indigenous peoples according to the provincial and the federal governments, and that's. Uh, that's, I think, the model that continues to operate in most politicians' minds and many federal Department of Justice briefs and attorney general's briefs when they're faced with challenges of Aboriginal peoples that, that government has to flow from parliament and from the legislature. Um, it can't flow from an independent source like uh, the preexistence of Indigenous peoples. And so given that hardwiring, that default position of federalism, Indigenous Peoples are are always arguing against the grain and they have not been successful so far in persuading Parliament uh, to broadly recognise these rights that are not just creatures of the Legislature or Parliament.
0: To briefly summarise this, Sections 91 and 92 of the 1867 Constitution Act Vest legislative power in Canada's federal and provincial governments, which means that Indigenous peoples acquire such power only through these governments. And to the extent that the Aboriginal rights section of the 1982 Constitution Act hadn't changed this, probably the most important item of unfinished business for Indigenous peoples after patriation was the affirmation of their status precisely as peoples, as autonomous communities whose ability to self-govern shouldn't depend on the will of federal or provincial lawmakers. And as Professor Borrows continues, the need to clearly recognise this status in the constitution was for many people an essential step to address what they regarded as the fundamental illegitimacy of the Canadian state.
1: So the point to make here is that when we're thinking about Indigenous issues, there is a question of legality, whether or not we're being uh, consistent with the rules that are there. But just because something is constitutionally legal doesn't necessarily mean that it's legitimate in the eyes of nation. And if Indigenous peoples are colonialized people that don't have control of their affairs and aren't being particularly um, uh, represented in their own institutions, as well as the institutions that the Canadian government is recognizing, then the constitution might be legal, but it might not be legitimate. And so that is an opening space for Indigenous peoples to continue to argue about. They argued about this before, um, uh, but we continue to see those arguments that the Canadian state is not a legitimate state. um, We don't see ourselves as Indigenous peoples in the uh, institutions. principles and our processes aren't reflected in the way that we talk with one another about resolving our disputes in the country. Um, It's basically um, broadly coercive and forced and with very little um, legitimacy because, you know, doctrine of discovery and terra nullius and these ideas of uh, superiority of indigenous, sorry, non-indigenous political Institutions uh, being the justification for the overriding sovereignty of the crown and the underlying uh, title that the crown claims in relationship to indigenous peoples is a big problem for uh, many indigenous peoples. So there's so we think about legitimacy and uh, legality in light of the doctrine of discovery and the coercion and the non-participation.
0: So with national Indigenous groups now directly involved in the constitutional talks, there was a real window of opportunity in 1992 to begin addressing the legitimacy problems outlined by Professor Borrows, but it was unclear if the four participating groups could represent the diverse needs of Indigenous people and peoples across Canada. The Native Women's Association of Canada, NWAC for short, answered this question in the negative when it unsuccessfully challenged its exclusion from the talks in the Canadian courts. And as Professor Naomi Metallic explains, understanding NWAC's challenge and the significance of its exclusion means understanding the uniqueness and intensity of the discrimination that Indigenous women in particular had historically faced.
2: There's a long history, especially with the Indian Act, of uh, gender discrimination, and it comes in a, diff- uh, a couple of different forms. One being that until 1951, Indigen- uh, First Nations women, Indian women under the Indian Act, were not entitled to vote in banned elections, um, and uh, and to yeah to vote or run. Um, and you know, and for some in some nations, this would be completely. Um, you know, uh, turning on its head, traditional practices, there were some, you know, communities that were quite matriarchal or had consensus-based decision-making that involved, you know, all genders. Um, and so, uh, there's that political element to it, but a huge impact that was sort of, yeah, it was, it was, it would have been felt pretty, um, it would have still been really stinging uh at this point uh was the rules in the indian act around uh status so who who is recognized under the law as a quote-unquote indian and canada has controlled this pretty well since the beginning of Confederation. And uh, it's a long and sordid story, uh, but the Indian status rules have been used uh, to further government's policies of assimilation and sometimes really sort of crazy and arbitrary ways. Like there were rules that if you um, you know became a doctor or a lawyer, um, people who enlisted in world war one or world war two all lost their Indian status automatically. Those, those are called the automatic enfranchisement rules. Um, there was voluntary enfranchisement. So it's sort of wrapped up in this idea that you, you, by losing, by shedding your Indian status, you became, you know, a Canadian citizen. So you know, wrapped up in assimilative ideas about what it was to be like a true citizen. Um, but one of the most impactful rules that was pretty well in place, I think since 1868 up until 1985 was a rule that a, an Indian woman who married a non-Indian man or uh, a man who did not have Indian status, he may well have been a uh, first nation or Métis, um, lost their status and they weren't able to transmit it to their children. Whereas it was the opposite um, when it came to indigenous men. So a long history of that women being excluded Um, denied their ability to live within, you know, their First Nations. So sort of, you know, um, I've heard it called, uh, there's a woman in the MMIW report that effectively calls it banishment, right? And sort of treating them as, uh, you know, banishing them uh, from from their homelands in some respects.
0: So to ensure compliance with the newly effective equality section of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Canada passed a law in 1985 abolishing the marrying out rule and enabling Indigenous women to regain their law status and rights. But as Professor Metallic continues to explain, this was unfortunately far from being the end of the story.
2: What was happening at the time in 85 was um, all these women were now entitled to be reinstated as with their children now uh, able to have Indian status. Uh, Many communities raising alarm bells that uh, this gave them the ability to come and live on, you know, reserve, which are, you know, I think reserve land makes up only 0.2% of all the territory in Canada all the lands in Canada, and so insufficient land bases to really accommodate the needs of um, Indigenous women and their children if they wanted to come back. Um, And so instead of funding, um, you know, communities to address these needs to accommodate the new people, um, what Canada offered instead was uh, the option, if uh, bands so wished, uh, to adopt their own membership rules Canada would still control status but can, um, status and, and membership could be cleaved from each other they used to be one and the same but uh, a band could then take over control of membership and if they did so within a certain amount of time in which um, the uh, the new rules came into effect the, in 95 uh, 85 I'm sorry um, they could exclude not the women. But they were allowed to exclude effectively their children, which would obviously have an impact on those women. Um, And I've actually seen copies of the letters that were sent sort of suggesting, like, here's a great way that you could address this issue if you're concerned about it. Instead of addressing the real resource issue, um, Canada was in some way sort of passing on the discrimination buck um, to First Nations. And so... um, I also think that over time, the patriarchal sort of mindset of the Indian Act has seeped into Indigenous uh, politics in in some respects as well. And so uh, what we see in 85 is um, and thereafter uh, is some communities adopting these membership codes that were excluding um, Indigenous women's children that have been reinstated.
0: So to summarise, while it was hugely significant that the Assembly of First Nations and other groups were now at the constitutional bargaining table, the extent of historic and ongoing discrimination against Indigenous women in particular left many people frustrated, to say the least, at the government's failure to give NWAC its own seat at the table, And this frustration was eventually compounded when the Supreme Court of Canada ruled against NWAC's complaint in 1994, several years after the talks had already concluded. Now we'll return a bit later to look at the way that the Charlottetown Accord dealt with Indigenous people's status and rights under the Constitution. But for now, I want to shift your attention back to another defining feature of the talks, and that's the absenteeism of Brian Mulroney on the one hand and Quebec on the other. So starting with Mulrooney, he'd been central to the Meech Lake talks in 1987, but this time around he sent his Minister for Constitutional Affairs, Joe Clark, in his place. And the obvious question is, accordingly, why this time does Mulrooney take a step back?
3: Oh, he knew that he couldn't negotiate something. He had to send Joe Clark out there because he understood that he had no, um, how would you put it, no cachet, uh, no uh, inf- enough influence with people. They just wouldn't believe him if he was starting to put together a package again. So Clark had actually deeper roots, of course, in Western Canada. He had uh, deep roots in the Conservative Party. He could uh, he could speak to, if you will, the reformers who are really the old social creditors who are retooling and re, re uh, you know recasting themselves. Uh, Clark has has uh, has a lot of uh, a lot of uh, cachet again with them political connections and, and such like. So Joe Clark is the really the only actor in the federal government at that point who could put together a package, and he did a very good job of it, by the way, because he was a natural compromiser, searching for things, not uh, demanding. His personality was very. And that's why he was never prime minister for very long, <laughs> was, was very, uh, very much about finding a consensus, if you will. And he was just excellent at that process. Uh, so when a province would say, you know, can we, can we get to this or that, he was quite able to say, I think we can.
0: That was Professor Howard Leeson, who was a constitutional negotiator for Saskatchewan. And he's right that by 1992, Mulroney really was all out of cachet, with his approval rating dipping below 20% after the failure of Meech and quite simply never recovering. Joe Clark, on the other hand, as a respected former prime minister and by all accounts a natural compromiser, was kind of an obvious choice to run the talks. But as one of the Yukons' negotiators, Professor John White suggests there were a number of downsides to Clark's negotiating position and style.
4: He was conciliatory. He was—he uh, he didn't have an agenda, uh, I would say. Um, he really didn't have an agenda, and. Uh, I think that he did not have a mandate to negotiate. He had a mandate to uh, chair a meeting in which it, what would emerge would be what provinces felt would be solving whatever problems the nation had from its constitutional arrangement. So I suppose one might say that. Mulroney told him to go in and mind the shop and uh, he gave all the goods away (laughs) and Mulroney had to go to Charlottetown and see if he could recover some of them.
0: Now, I want to take a few minutes to gradually piece together what Professor White means when he says that Joe Clark gave all the goods away. And in order to do this, we need to talk first about Quebec, the other big absentee from the talks aside from Mulroney. So Quebec's official stance, as we've learned already, was that it would await a constitutional offer from the rest of Canada, and that if no offer was forthcoming, it would hold a referendum on sovereignty by the end of October 1992. And in a lot of ways, this strategy of remaining on the sidelines made sense, but as one of Nova Scotia's constitutional negotiators, Brian Lee Crowley, told us, it was also a huge risk.
5: People in negotiations like this, uh, if they're good faith participants, and they're 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 committed to succeeding in finding an agreement, uh, negotiations like that take on a life of their own, and you build up relationships with you know your opposite numbers from other problems. I'm still friends with people I negotiated the Charlottetown Accord with you know, who were there from the federal government or other provinces or whatever. Uh, And, you know, we come to understand each other. Uh, We come to know what the thinking is that they represent. Uh, We come to care for each other. We have fun with each other, uh, uh, you know, outside the negotiating table and even around the table. And you become committed to the process. Uh, You become committed to each other. You're there in a common enterprise. And Quebec's absence, I mean, what Quebec, I guess, theoretically, what Quebec was trying to do, they said, okay, well, Meach Lake, uh, we came to the rest of Canada with a specific set of demands. Uh, we, we boiled them down to what we thought was the absolute irreducible minimum. Uh, and you guys rejected it. You rejected, you rejected it, and you rejected us. So, you know, Quebec's view was, okay, if you don't want to hear from us, if you don't want us to tell you what we need, we want to hear from you what you're willing to do. And in a way, I guess maybe that was a clever strategy. Um, they, they wanted... The rest of Canada to commit itself to something before Quebec took part in the negotiations. What they didn't understand, I don't think any of us understood it at the time, what they didn't understand was the extent to which the negotiations would take on their own dynamic and people around the table were quite committed
0: to what they'd done. So as it turned out, uh, the negotiations did take on their own dynamic with great consequence. And to understand how this happened and to understand what happened, we have to acquaint ourselves with one final piece of the puzzle, namely the idea of a Triple E Senate. And so we asked Professor Michael Listig to briefly explain what a Triple E Senate is all about.
6: A Triple E Senate is one that is elected, effective, and equal. OK, so right now, the Canadian Senate is entirely appointed. It's not effective because by virtue of not being elected, it it's a second class institution to the House of Commons. The House of Commons can claim a popular mandate. The Senate can't. So the Senate really is not in a position to block legislation coming out of the House of, of Commons or bills coming out of the House of Commons. And for that reason, it's not effective. So, what Westerners wanted was an effective Senate, a Senate that could block Quebec and Ontario's massive population benefits uh, that manifest in the House of Commons. It wanted it to be elective so that it would have that mandate to block the house of commons and it wanted equal representation in the senate much like the united states senate is equal because right now the larger provinces have a larger number of senators it's not exactly representation by population but certainly ontario and quebec have a larger share of the senate so first thing you need to do if you're a Westerner, is equalized the number of senators across provinces, then you need to make it elected so that it can be effective, so that it can claim a mandate to represent the popular will.
0: So the Senate was understandably a keystone issue for Western Canadians in 1992 because they stood to gain a lot of federal power, as Professor Listig pointed out, from the triple E model. The problem, though, was that the Triple E model would reduce Quebec's share of federal legislative power, and it was accordingly hard to see how it could realistically be part of any deal that could eventually reap the consent of Quebec and prevent their scheduled secession vote. That said, as the talks dragged on into July, Senate reform remained a big obstacle to a deal, and to understand what happens next, we need to recall three key details that we've just encountered. Firstly, Joe Clark's conciliatory approach. Secondly, Quebec's absence from the talks. And thirdly, the division between Western provinces and Quebec on the idea of a Triple E Senate. So here's what happens. On July 7th, apparently against the instructions of Mulroney, Joe Clark agrees to a Triple E Senate and concludes a constitutional deal with the unanimous consent of the territories, the participating Indigenous groups and the nine provinces accepting the absent Quebec. In his memoirs, Mulroney recounts his exasperation at this development because while striking a deal with 15 other delegations was a big achievement for Clark and the federal government, it was highly unlikely that a Triple E Senate could be sold to Quebec, given that this would shrink its share of federal legislative power. And of course, a deal that couldn't be sold to Quebec would guarantee another Quebec secession referendum which could in turn pave the way for Quebec secession and the breakup of Canada. At this point then, it looks like the chances of a Quebec-inclusive deal have been reduced to nil but in the weeks that follow Clark's deal, Quebec finally joins the talks and the other delegates make significant concessions to get it to sign the deal, most notably an increase in Quebec's share of seats in the more powerful House of Parliament, the House of Commons. And So in the end, when the Charlottetown Accord is eventually signed on August 28th, it's an agreement that's defined by significant trade-offs on different sides, with the West sacrificing power to Quebec in the House of Commons to get a triple-E Senate, and with Quebec sacrificing the Senate to get more power in the Commons. This tells you a lot of what you need to know about the Charlottetown Accord, which was in essence the everything but the Kitchen Sink Accord, a vast package of 60 items that was built to satisfy and balance an immense spectrum of federal, provincial, territorial and Indigenous interests. The thing is though, if you cut through the vastness of it, there is one provision that I think stands out for its significance and its transformative potential. And that's the recognition of the inherent right of Aboriginal self-government. And as Professor Cathy Brock explains, the coming together of delegates on this issue marked the culmination of a very fractious, difficult story that extends back to the mid-1980s. In
7: 1985, at the First Minister's talks, where you had the four major indigenous organizations represented, they almost came to agreement and they had six governments on side to actually entrench Aboriginal self-government in the constitution. What happened was a number of the governments talked. They said it was too ambiguous. So although it looked like an agreement was going to be signed, the talks fell apart, some of the governments in Canada, the provincial governments, said that they wanted Aboriginal rights defined more specifically. They also wanted Aboriginal self-government defined as um, a form of government that was delegated from the federal and provincial governments so that it was not recognized, instead it was created by the federal and provincial governments, and the powers would be delegated from the federal and provincial governments to Aboriginal governments. The Aboriginal leaders said no. Their rights were pre-existing so that they could not be delegated from the federal and provincial governments. Instead, the federal and provincial governments could only recognize them. 1985 ended in a very bitter process. So in 1987, when they went back into negotiations to see if they could get Aboriginal self government entrenched, it was a tough set of negotiations. One month before, the federal and provincial governments had started to talk about Meech Lake and including Quebec in the Constitution. When it got to the Aboriginal round of negotiations and the governments all showed up for it, some of the governments had their representatives go and start negotiating about Quebec, rather than even being at the table to talk seriously about Aboriginal matters. So Aboriginal leaders felt that they had really been disrespected in that process and that their rights hadn't been taken seriously. And when the issue of define before sign came up again, then the talks fell apart. And it was on this key question of Are the federal and provincial governments recognising Aboriginal rights or are they delegating the powers and creating these governments? So
0: that was the story of the 1980s. But the story of the 1992 negotiations was ultimately a very different one, which concluded with the recognition not just of the right to self-government, but also of the inherent nature of that right, And I asked Professor Naomi Metallic, who we heard from earlier, if she could say a bit more about exactly why this word inherent was and is so vitally important.
2: So inherent means not given by uh, any of the other levels of government in Canada. Uh, It means that it it pre-exists, you know, Canada as a country, and it comes from the fact that you know, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada sort of often uses language of like pre-existing or prior occupation, but it's more than occupation. And it's interesting. Actually, it's another interesting case from the Supreme Court this year, Desotel. But we're already starting to see a bit of a shift in language from the court. They say it's about not just prior occupation, but the fact that there were autonomous, organized societies living in Canada. And so there's sort of self that that dimension of recognizing that there were peoples who, who governed themselves um, that I think is, that was actually for a long time, sort of that, that language was sort of erased from the discussion. Um, so, um, so inherent means uh, not given. And there was, you know, a long period of time where, you know, a Privy Council decision, the St. Catherine's Milling decision said that all rights that indigenous people had to, to lands or, or what have you, or just lands granted by, you know, the by Britain. Um, and so, you know, what we what we call, I guess, in my field is sort of delegated rights. And um, it makes a huge difference. And, and it's funny, there's been a couple of cases where there's sort of been debates about whether like modern day self-government agreements or, or land claims are, you um, You know, whether whether they are a form of delegated right or whether they're a recognition of an inherent right. And there's been a couple uh, there's a B.C. Court of Appeal decision called Chief Mountain. And uh, they say, oh, it doesn't matter. We don't have to decide whether it's delegated or 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 inherent. And that's not true. It, It certainly matters. Right if you're dependent on somebody, I mean, you have no leverage if you're simply just re- relying on the good grace of the government, right? Like any any rights granted were those, you know, at the goodwill of the sovereign, which is the language used in St. Catharines. Whereas if you have an inherent right, you have, you know, uh, a, a set of rights that are, you know, so much more powerful and, and um, you know, a fundamental human right as opposed to one just simply granted by the by the government.
0: So, in the Charlottetown Accord, Aboriginal self government was recognized as an inherent non delegated right, but it was also framed crucially as a right that would be limited by the application of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms to Indigenous governments. And this was a point of controversy because while many folks value the Charter as a way of protecting Indigenous people from their own governments, it would only do this by empowering non-Indigenous institutions, the Canadian courts, to use a non-Indigenous law, the Charter, to overrule acts of Indigenous governments. And so for some people, charter application was a huge sacrifice for Indigenous peoples, a sacrifice that would fundamentally dilute their capacity to be truly self-governing. This is another example then of the precarious trade-offs that went into and produced the Charlottetown Accord, with different groups getting what they wanted only by accepting stipulations or accepting other reforms to which they were strongly opposed. And in the end, the willingness of delegates to do this, to trade, barter, sacrifice and compromise, did produce a genuinely remarkable, against the odds agreement, But it was unclear if this agreement could be sold to the Canadian public and in particular if different communities could accept the sacrifices and the trade-offs that had been proposed on their behalf. We'll return to this question in the final episode next week, but for now I want to finish by handing over once again to Professor Cathy Brock who uses a critique of one of the Accord's key provisions, the so-called Canada Clause, to point out that while the Accord admirably tried to recognise Canada's diversity, it lacked the coherent national vision that, for better or worse, was evident in Pierre Trudeau's ultimately successful efforts to patriot the Canadian constitution in the early 1980s. So to make this point and to end the episode, here's Professor Brock. The
7: Canada Clause... Um To me, that was, uh, I had been someone who had contributed to the writing of it. And um, that clause was a breakthrough clause because it did recognize Canada and its diversity. And I thought it was very important. But what it failed to do was to provide an overarching sense of what it was to be Canadian. It had all the parts right. It just didn't have the whole right. And so I think that generated a lot of criticism. And that was something with the Charlottetown Accord as a whole. It had a lot of reforms to our institutions. And people in the hearings began to question them and say, well, you're going to reform the Senate. You're going to reform spending power. But why? What is the overarching rationale? What is the Canada of tomorrow that this agreement is taking us towards? And that was never explained. So I think the parts appealed to certain groups, to certain issues, and a lot of the organizations that had involved in the hearings and in the working groups, but it didn't provide the overarching framework of what it was to be a Canadian in the coming centuries.